Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary, And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Daily Dose. I think, you know, you watch that little guy stream yeah. and I think actually maybe it's live before it says it's live because if I go back and watch these, we look a little clueless for the first three seconds of every episode. So maybe we need to look into that Sometimes a little bit. Sometimes maybe a little bit more. But <laughs> <laughs> We're excited. It's Guest Thursday and it's the first Guest Thursday of our 300 plus episodes. So we're at 301 and we're joined by a... Uh, 12-minute old friend. We just met her ourselves, so everything you're learning practically will be learning too. But um, I'm I'm really thrilled to be bringing Karina Monison to the conversation today, in part because she is the first part of a two-part series. We're going to talk to her mom next week. And if you think back to um, the Wilson conversation that we had with Mr. Wilson and then... Um, his daughter, whose name has completely left me, even though I know her well, those are powerful conversations to hear two sides of the same story. Yeah. So we're really thrilled that Karina is joining us and we're going to bring her on stage, on stage right now. <laughs> Good morning, Karina. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me today. It's an honor to be here for the 300th plus episode. Thank you. Thank we're, you. we're excited to have you. Um, and we're thrilled, as I said to you when we hopped on just a few minutes ago, because I have a child who sometimes gets roped into things because of who his mother is. I appreciated that you joyfully got roped into this and said, yeah, all right, I'll come and do this. So thank you for that. No, I mean, it's, it's absolutely an honor. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to tell my story. And I think a lot of that too comes down to reliving it and, and just taking a moment. Every time I tell my story, I think it gives me the opportunity to think back to what it was like. And that's really allows me to be so grateful for what my life looks like today, because I think now, you know, almost nine years later, it's very easy for me to forget what it was like not that long ago. So I, I really do appreciate it. It's, it's therapy for me every time I get to tell my story. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you. Excellent. That's great. So let's just jump right in, Karina. Give us your um, there to here and start your there wherever you would like to go back to. And we're just here for the, for the um, honorable ride with you. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, I think to... To really start back, one one story that I like to think about sometimes is just the fact that I truly believe that I was born with a highly addictive personality. I think that that's just part of who I am and it's how I've always been. And that was pretty evident to my parents from a very early age, especially with chocolate and candy. It was uh, basically this, this bottomless pit then no matter how much I had, I could never actually eat enough. I didn't have that signal in my brain that told me, okay, that's enough. You can stop now. And so my parents would have to set these limits with me like, okay, Karina, you can only have two cupcakes or three pieces of candy or whatever the case may be, um, which they didn't have to do with my siblings because they, you know, would eat until they were, they were done and then they would stop. And so at a relatively young age, I don't know exactly how old I was, but I can remember it. So I was probably around five. I would start sneaking out in the middle of the night after my parents had gone to bed and I would sneak into the kitchen and I would like pull out a chair and I would climb up the chair and I would get into the candy stash and I would just take all of this candy and I would eat it all. And I knew that if I put all of the wrappers in the trash can, it would be very evident the next morning what I had done. And so I would take the candy wrappers and I would stuff them under the couch cushions or I would put them behind mm -hmm. the television set in the, um, you know, the armoire or whatever it's called, the, the yes. TV set. And so from a very young age, I was already starting to, um, you know, to, to imbibe and to hide the evidence of, of what I was doing. And I think it's just kind of funny when I think about that and fast forward 14 years later, that was me with wine bottles and vodka bottles in the, 
in the uh, the suitcases in my closet, things like that. And so it was really just very evident from a very young age that I had this that this thing where it was difficult for me to to stop. And that was true with food. That was true with attention. That was true with a lot of different things. I just always wanted more, 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 more. And as a result of that, my parents kind of did tell me from a relatively young age, like, we're a little bit concerned about this. And we need to make sure that you're paying attention to to substances and things like that. And in some ways, I have wondered, maybe that was a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I really don't think so. And the very first time that I drank, I was with my sister. We were on a family vacation in South Carolina. And um, I think self-esteem for me is a big part of my story, too. And apologies if you're hearing some feedback in the background. Okay. Working okay. from home, right? I was going to um, say, we all live lives, so we have to deal with the lives we live. Exactly. Um, so I think self-esteem is a big part of my story, too, and constantly comparing myself to others and, and feeling less than or less wanted and things like that. And my sisters are stepsisters of mine, but they joined my family when I was four years old. So in every sense of the word, like these are my, my true sisters, but they don't look like me. Yep. And they're both absolutely beautiful and had been ever since they were very young. And I always felt less than compared to them. And I always noticed, especially once we got a little bit older, that anytime we would go out, that they would always be receiving a lot of male attention. And I would not be getting that, that at all to the same extent. And it was just very obvious to me. And I felt like, you know, less than and, and like this was a problem and I always wondered why aren't I good enough or why aren't I pretty enough and that was something that I struggled with for a very long time and the very first time that we drank we met up with these boys that we had met on the vacation and and they were making us mixed drinks of, of SoCo and vodka or something disgusting like that and as soon as I had had a couple of sips in me I just felt warm and I felt all of that fear, all of that feeling of not being good enough, not pretty enough, all of it just kind of disappeared. And that night it felt like the boys were paying attention to me and they wanted to kiss me. And it just, I mean, it sounds horrific now when I think about it as a 14 year old girl. Um, but at the time it felt like that, that old saying, like I had arrived. I well, like all you wanted 14. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. yeah, our adult selves can look back and say, oh my gosh, there's so much good coming. Hold on. But at 14, that's yeah. all you want. Yeah, it, it truly was. And I felt like for the first time accepted and like, okay, this and confident. And like, this is what, this is what life is supposed to feel like. And I ended up getting violently sick that night and I blacked out. I, I don't remember quite a few of the hours that were there, but my sister has told me some stories and I was vomiting and getting very, very sick. And I was still sick the next day, actually, I'm still vomiting on the way to the airport. My parents, you know, oh, I, I've got the flu. I don't know what it is. But even while I was still getting sick the next day, all I could think about was how much fun it had been the night before and how I couldn't wait to do that again. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, if, if you can relate to that. I think everyone has their their own story of coming to be and, and realizing how much better they thought their life could be under the influence. But to me, that's really what it was. I felt like a better version of myself, a prettier version of myself, a more desirable version of myself under the influence. I feel like that, I mean, to a lesser more gradual extent. That's certainly what you yeah. said. Maz always says to me that I'm the only woman he's ever met sober. Yeah. Everyone else he ever dated, he was drunk when he met them because he didn't have the courage to go up to them sober. Yep. I don't know what that says about me, but we'll just leave it <laughs> That you're approachable. Yeah, you're I, like, I don't think that's actually you, true. Yeah. Yes, you're very approachable. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so you're you're a young teenager at this point. How how did this progress in your life, Karina? Mm. So it progressed pretty fast and furious. And in many ways I'm actually grateful for that today, although I certainly wasn't at the time. But um, you know, starting in high school, every opportunity that I had, I would 
get very, very drunk. I always was the person that was getting sick. I didn't get black out quite as often in high school, but I was pretty much always going to be in the bathroom throwing up at some point during high school. Unfortunately, um, I wasn't a very accelerated academic a program at school. I was in a lot of extracurricular activities and I had a very close family unit. So I did not have the opportunity to drink as much as I wanted to. But every time I did, I was always drinking to excess. I, I really don't think I ever drank without getting sick uh, the entire time that I was in high school. I also started experimenting with some substances towards the end of high school. But really, it was alcohol that kept kind of bringing me back. And so at this point, um, it really hadn't raised any red flags with my family because it was still very much normal teenage behavior. And most of it, they weren't even aware of it was happening when I was on a sleepover or something like that. Yeah. And so really I kind of had this carte blanche opportunity when it came to college to continue this very uh, binge type drinking, except maximized to a much larger scale. So instead of drinking, twice a month or three times a month, I started drinking pretty much every single day. Once I once I went to college, my sister and I moved out to California, to San Diego, and the school that we chose was San Diego State, um, at the time, Playboy's number two top party school, which was why I wanted to go there. And, and that was really what college represented for me. I wanted to have a good time. I wanted to be an actress. So to me, it didn't really feel like I would need to be studying constantly and things like that. Like I wanted to go to college to have a good time. And I certainly did. Um, but it, it wasn't quite as fun as, as you would think. And so my drinking really hit some pretty, pretty scary places. It was when I was in college that I started blacking out. And I blacked out pretty much every single time that I drank. And um, on a good morning, I would wake up and I would look around me and, and try to find my keys and my wallet and my phone. And as long as I had all three of those things, then I could kind of take a sigh of relief and I would get out my phone and I would start looking through my text messages or my call log just to try to piece together what had happened the night before. And on a bad morning, I would wake up and I wouldn't know where I was. I would be missing some of those key items um, or, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to find my car. I wouldn't be able to find all of these things. It's really a miracle. I survived. Um, I survived that time frame. It was pretty, uh, uh, pretty stressful looking back on it, but that was, that was just my life. And, and that was fun in some ways, or at least I kept telling myself that it was fun. I was going to say, did you, if you think back to your 21 year old self or whatever, was it really fun? Cause it, it's, that is such, I, I was so straight laced. I, I think I've thrown up three times in my life from alcohol, never intentionally. Um, so I like, I just could not be further on the other side of the spectrum from this. So was it really fun? Cause the only time I was ever drunk in college I just hated every second of it because I'm such a control freak and I couldn't believe I couldn't control myself. <laughs> well, you know, I've done, a, I've had a lot of time to do some self-reflection on this and I could, I mean, I'm, I could be totally off base here, but I think that part of the appeal that getting to that place of being out of control had for me was the fact that it quieted my nonstop self-judgment. And it just kind of allowed me to, it was fun in a way because I just felt free and I felt like I wasn't constantly criticizing myself or wondering what other people were thinking about me and things like that. It just kind of opened it up. And I've also learned that in many of my blackouts, I would get a little bit violent. Like I would throw things and get really angry, which was an emotion that I really wasn't comfortable feeling sober. And so I oftentimes would push my anger down and never express it. And so I think that drinking both gave me an opportunity to be free of the constant criticism in my brain and also feel some of these negative emotions that I really hadn't allowed myself to feel. So I don't know, again, if that's fun necessarily, but it, it always started out fun. Like I would start off as the life of the party. I had a lot of friends. 
who, um, you know, all did things to access just like I did. And it was fun until they started being the ones like, okay, Karina, even for our standards, like you're getting a little bit out of control here. Um, but no, I, I don't think fun is the right word for it after a certain period of time. It, it certainly, there were some fun nights, there were some fun moments, but by and large, it stopped being fun very early for me. Hmm. Okay, so you graduated from college, right? I did, but not in San Diego and not at the time. So, um, oh, that's right. Cause your mother told me, can I just interject a story? Please, Sorry. Please. Your mother told me that they, like you said, had some sense that you were drinking, but you came home for, I don't know, Thanksgiving maybe or something and drank like two bottles of wine and were fine at the table. Okay, so that's that's the story that I remember, which made me go, wow, she had a very different life than I did. <laughs> and my sister, remember, my sister, who is my age, we're two weeks apart, she and I were out in California together. And she was in a different program. She was living in a different dorm that was across campus. So we weren't spending all of our time together, but we still did see each other on a regular basis. And she had started becoming very concerned about my drinking. She noticed that I smelled like alcohol during the day regularly and just that I, I didn't remember a lot of things that had happened. And so she brought some of those concerns to my parents and they even had me go see a therapist when I was home one year and the therapist, you know, I don't, I vaguely remember this even happening, but apparently I convinced him that I was just a normal college student and, and no problem at all, um, which upset my sister even further because it felt like a huge betrayal for her to come to them in the first place. So for her to do that and then knock it, feel like it wasn't taken seriously, I know was something that she struggled with for a while. But, you know, my parents had very little visibility into it. They only had what I, what they could see and what they could hear and what I was telling them. And I think when you are dealing with someone that you love so dearly, you want to believe the best. And there's, it's almost like a self-protection mechanism, I think, to, to be very hopeful. And I know that that's something that they were certainly feeling at the time and that they continue to feel in later years when I would get sober and then relapse, they never really wanted to believe that I had relapsed. And so they would make some pretty crazy excuses for my behavior or things like that under the hopes that, um, you know, that, that, it, that that was what was actually happening. And so, I mean, I don't want to get way too, too deep into my drunk log, but I think suffice it to say, I am a, a, a very hardcore alcoholic and I don't, I was never functional. Even from the very first day that I drank, I was not a functional alcoholic. And in many ways, that is a blessing because it brought me to my knees as fast as it did. And so um, I ended up not passing several of my classes in San Diego the second semester of my sophomore year because of my drinking. And um, I managed to convince my parents that it was because I had mono. And so I came back to, to them. Right. <laughs> right, to recover for a few weeks because I had mono, um, which my, my roommate had had, and I had been feeling sick, but I didn't actually know if I had mono or not. It was a convenient excuse. Um, and, and yeah, while I was home with them recovering for a few weeks, that was when it became very apparent to them that I did have a problem, and I actually ended up crashing my mom's car and was flight for life to the hospital. So that was, thank God I hit a... Um, a cement divider instead of another person. And that was the, the very first real wake up call that we had. And that was the first of several hospitalizations. That was the first of several um, run-ins with the law and also the first of several treatment centers. And so that was the impetus for about, let's see, that was 19 at the time and until 24. So five years of basically in and out of treatment centers and in and out of halfway houses and in and out of courtrooms and um, in and out of sobriety. And I really, truly, because I had been brought to my knees so early on, I did want to get sober. I did want to live a sober life because by that point, by 19, you know, five years into my drinking career, it was no longer enjoyable in any stretch of the imagination. And when I drank, it didn't give me any peace of mind. It didn't quell anything. It just, I mean, I blacked out. And so it gave me quiet. 
And I guess that was the only real, the only real appeal that it had, but I was um, absolutely miserable. And I think that I was aware of the fact that I was killing myself and trying to help that along, to be honest. Um, I was drinking to lethal levels pretty much on a daily basis. The highest one that I've ever um, had in the hospital was a point. It's either four, seven or 0.57, but like, like truly, truly, truly yeah. lethal levels. Wow. And, um, and that was, that was not unusual. That was not an unusual day for me. So, um, it very quickly got to a point where my body was failing. My liver was failing. I was feeling very ill all of the time. And at the end of this type of up and down, because I would go to treatment and I would love treatment and I did very, very well in treatment. And I would be completely gung ho about like, this is the life that I want to live. And I would do all of the work and I would take it very seriously. And I would agree to go to the halfway houses afterwards. I would agree to do these things. I was very good at treatment, but it was the real life that, um, that really stumped me. And even though drinking no longer gave me any joy or any peace, the best way that I could describe it to someone that has never felt is that I felt like it was a, a constant itch that I just couldn't scratch. And it was just itching constantly. And I just want to scratch it all day long. And so even, even when I'm in an enjoyable moment with my family, even when I'm out there trying to get a job or pursue my career or go to school, in the back of my mind, I'm constantly thinking about how bad it itches and how, how badly I just want to scratch. And um, I don't know if, if you Did can you, relate to that, but that's how I felt. Not really. I mean, I, it's interesting to to think about this because I, like I, I've said in the past that when we would travel, after we got out of the airport or uh, got to the community, if we had driven, we had to immediately yeah. go to a liquor store. Maz had to immediately buy a travel bottle of whiskey. He never traveled with it, but that was first stop before we would see our son, before we would do anything. And so I think there is some of that, but not maybe to the same extent. No, I mean, that, that especially um, in the latter part of it all, I, that was the thing is that as soon as we go somewhere, I thought, great, we're here. Where's the liquor store? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. But I tried... <clears throat> Yeah, I, I think you, I think you might be right in some extent. That be, did become the the focus of anywhere we went. Is oh great, now where's the first place I can find something to drink later? And the relief, right? The relief when you have it in your yeah. hands and you know that, like, okay, it was kind of now I can relax for a few hours. I didn't even have to drink. It was mm -hmm. it's there, so I can have that later. Yeah, hundred percent. So. I um <clears throat> I spent about 90 minutes with Maz and his core group uh at the treatment center where he went and um it was a, I, maybe this is common everywhere I don't know because we've only been through this once so I don't know how this works everywhere but um Maz didn't know I was coming and the purpose of the conversation was that his his group of fellow addicts did not believe anything he was saying. And so they wanted me to come and sort of dispel his lies and lay down the truth. Okay. Um, and there were lots of incredible things about those 90 minutes, but what, what absolutely shook me, and this is why I'm bringing this up to you, is Maz was the only person who was there for the first time. Oh, yeah. So we had people from 20 to probably 75 and the number of times they had been in treatment, I I almost couldn't stay in that room for fear of thinking, is this now the rest of my life? Am I going to be making this meeting like every 18 months, every how, how often this happens? And what what really hit me was I believed whether they believed it or not they certainly were convincing i believed that they also wanted this to be their only time in rehab mm -hmm. so i'm i'm fascinated to hear you say that you were really good at rehab like maybe that's part of, maybe you were sort of addicted to rehab as part of that personality and i i just remember hearing them at various times talk about i'm afraid to leave here i know how to be sober here i don't know how to be sober once i'm gone I also remember one of my counselors saying to me when I was leaving, um, she said, I don't think I'm going to see you again. Not because I think you're going to go off and drink yourself to death. Because I think 
if if you stay with this long term you're going to be fine and i said well what could you, you say that to everyone else and she said to me sometimes they learn what to say and when to say it but we know they don't mean it mm -hmm. yeah and i think that that's that's very common and to me i did i did mean it and actually the first two treatment centers that i went to i was kind of uh, especially the first one because my my mom came my dad came my stepdad came and we were almost like the poster child of how to do treatment right right mm -hmm. of how to how to save your daughter's life and move forward and getting my dad to to understand that this was actually a disease and not a core personal failing that was probably the biggest challenge but once he was there we did i mean we did family program great and i think that people really did think that I was going to make it just fine. And I was hopeful that I would make it just fine. Um, but, but I can relate so much to, to what you were feeling and what you were saying and, and that experience, because it is like I did treatment well, but once I was out in the wild and living my life, once the immediate uh, crisis had faded a little bit from my mind, I mean, remember I was 19 years old when I first, when I went to that first treatment center. And so the thought of, you know, being a, being someone in recovery at 33, I'm still an anomaly, but being someone in recovery at 19 was pretty much unheard of. Um, mm -hmm. Only people that, that were as bad as me, right. Would have, would have gotten to that point that quickly. And so it was very challenging and I, to, you know, feel like I had any type of a social life and, and I did get involved in the meetings, but I was always the youngest person in the meeting by typically at least 10 plus years. And so it wasn't exactly like, I felt like I was forming the social group of people that I could go out and, and have fun with in ways that were age appropriate for me at the time. And I think that I use that as a, as an excuse for sure. Um, and it's interesting because now I, I see that there are quite a few younger people and there were back then too. There just weren't very many of them. And I, anytime I met them, I would use, uh, I would almost always find a way to have them be other than me. Right. And that's why I can't be their best friend and make this life with them. Cause they, they're different for me for this reason, instead of looking at all of the reasons that they were the same. So to me, um, you know, staying sober outside of treatment was just very challenging. And I, um, I'm very fortunate. The last treatment center that I went to the third one, I went to a trauma specific treatment center where I was able to discuss some of the traumas that had happened to me both as a child and, and nothing serious, right? Like I was watching your um, your episode with Eric this morning and I, I certainly was never abused oh or anything gosh. Like that. yeah. That's a whole, a whole different story. But another thing that I learned in treatment from some really great therapists is that like your trauma is your trauma, regardless yeah. of how serious it sounds to someone else. It, it doesn't yeah. need to be less than or more than somebody else's. Yeah, Absolutely. Not, that's a hard lesson. points against each other. Yeah. I, right. I, think, I think that's a human lesson we all mm -hmm. need to learn. I yeah. had someone once say to me, because I said something about, you know, we've only been through rehab once and blah. And she wrote and she said, never say that again. Your experience was hard for you. Yeah. You don't need to rank it next to, well, yeah, but Karina and Joanna did this three times. It doesn't matter. That's your trauma. This is our trauma. Exactly. And that yeah. was a big lesson for me to swallow because I'm like, okay, yeah, my parents got divorced. Boo-hoo. You know, I, I didn't feel pretty. Boo-hoo. But, it, you know, there was, a, there was a lot. There were some instances that were nobody's fault that happened when I was very young, like three to five years old, that I think did impact my stability and feeling of um, safe in my home. And, and then couple that with a lot of the very serious traumas that occurred, as you might imagine, as a relatively attractive young girl who's blacked out constantly and where there's a lot of parties, there's some, um, you know, some situations that you put yourself in in that case. So there was some, some trauma that I really needed to sort through. And I think that that was the biggest gift that that treatment center gave me was the opportunity to really work through some of that. And unfortunately, after that one, Six or seven months later, I did end up relapsing again. Um, but after that, I kind of had a, a coming to, to Jesus moment, I guess, with my mom. She flew down to the hospital where I was at. Um, that was when I had that really, really high alcohol level. And she was, I remember her crying next to me and she was saying like, Karina, you're not going to make it to 25, which was my birthday in about a month and a half. And she had, she'd often said things like that to me, but laying there in that hospital bed, I just kind of had this understanding that she was right 
and that I really was very, very close to death. And I was so puffy all the time and just pain in my side where my liver was. And I was like, you know what? She's right. I'm going to die. And I, I thought that it was inevitable. I really thought that I was one of the people in the rooms that they talk about that is just constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves and won't make it. And I realized that if I was going to die, that I wanted to do whatever I could to make them proud in the moment and at least give it my best. And I knew that I hadn't really tried. Um, For me, the the 12-step program AA was what really brought me into my recovery. and, And I knew that since I can't be in treatment forever, like AA is, is what has resonated with me the most in the past. And so I agreed, like I, I promised myself that I would really give it my all and I would give the 12 step program everything I had. And I was convinced that it wasn't going to work for me and that I was going to end up relapsing and dying anyways. But I wanted to kind of prove that I had at least done everything that I could so that, you know, at my funeral, you'll at least know that I tried. And um, little did I suspect that it, it didn't take very long at all, actually, for me to to reach a point where that itch didn't itch so badly. And I got hooked up with an incredible sponsor. I went to a meeting every single day. I did the step work. I surrounded myself with a really great group of people that were also in recovery and continued with therapy, continued with different things. I got a great job in the field that I wanted. And things just sort of started happening. And I, it was one day, a few months in, that I suddenly realized that I hadn't thought about drinking in a couple of days. And, and at that point in time for me, that was the first time in my young adult life that that had ever been true. And that was really pretty shocking to me. And I mean, just as fast and furious as I felt, that's how fast and furious my recovery felt, that, that all of a sudden it was just kind of lifted. And that's not to say that I didn't still occasionally fantasize about it or wish that I could drink a glass of wine like a normal person, but it it was relieved for me very, very quickly. And um, it was just an absolute miracle. And what's funny, what's funny here is that I finally reached that point where I was like, you know what, God, your will, not mine, be done. Like, I feel this in the steps. I feel this in the work that I've done. Like, I trust you. Do with me and my life as you will. And, like, I will follow suit. And then I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> and that threw things for a little bit of a <laughs> So um, my boyfriend and I, I had met him in my home group, which I had gone to for the first time at, like, two days sober. And, um, you know, we, we started dating when I had, like, a month and a half sober, which is highly not recommended. Mm-hmm. But that was also kind of my MO is when I would get sober, I would get involved with a boy to, again, like make my self-esteem feel better, take my mind off of it or whatever. And he, I mean, he was fantastic. He was so involved in recovery. He was extremely passionate. He had about nine months more sober than I did. And um, he just lived and breathed it and was surrounded by a really great fellowship of men and and other women. And he was just on fire. And I think that that was a big part of what attracted me to him. But we'd only been dating for about six months um, when I found out I was pregnant. And and I'd only been sober for nine months when I found out I was pregnant. And And also, fun fact, I had been told from a very young age that I wouldn't be able to get pregnant without help because I have a hormonal disorder that, um, that became evident at 13. So it was like this, on the one hand, this complete and total miracle. And on the other hand, the scariest thing that could have ever possibly happened. It wasn't the right time. I didn't think it was the right person. I didn't, you know, like, am I, can I stay sober through this? And, and I, I eventually realized I'm like, if I don't have this child and like, I'll probably never be able to forgive myself. And what if I actually can't get pregnant again? And this is my one chance to be a mother. And like, could I ever stay sober through that? And um, it was a lot of a lot of people in the rooms, a lot of prayer. And um, I mean, it took about 24 hours for us to say, let's have this baby. Um, but they felt like a very long 24 hours. And that was the best. That was the best decision I've ever made in my entire life. And um, we have two daughters now. We got married 
um, back in 2017. We have a beautiful home. We did end up having to go through IVF to have our second daughter. And so oh, she is she is uh, 16 months old right now. So we have oh a seven-year-old and a 16-month-old. And um, I mean, I just, I can't, I can't express the blessings of the past nine years. It's just been um, like when I look at my life today, I really do oftentimes get, get tears in my eyes because it's so beautiful. And it's like everything that I ever could have hoped for. And it's so different from, um, from the, the path that I was on from being convinced, you know, eight and a half years ago that I was going to die and there was nothing I could do about it, but I might as well try my best and to see how my life has progressed today. I have an incredible career and an amazing company that takes fantastic care of me and my family and my colleagues. And I'm just surrounded by people that I love. And um, I get to be fully present today. I get to be there for my girls. I get to be there for my mom. I get to be there for my siblings. And um, I, it's just, it's an absolutely beautiful life. And I think the biggest thing that I learned about getting sober and actually living sober was that for my whole life, ever since my addiction became very, very evident to me, I thought that getting sober was going to be the hardest thing that I ever had to do. And once I reached sobriety and became a mother, I realized that life is actually the hardest thing that you have to do, but it's also the most rewarding and that you can't, I, I personally was not capable of being part of my life and drinking at the same time. And so although getting sober was extremely challenging, it was really step one of the many challenges that I've had to face as like a human being on this earth. But realizing that that is the joy and that is the privilege of being a human being is to live through these experiences and to grow and adapt and get stronger and be present through the highs and the lows in a way that I personally was not capable of doing when I was numb and blacked out. Wow. wow. That's incredible. That's an extraordinary story. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. Wow. And congratulations. Oh God. Yes. It's, 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 un, it's unbelievable. So, okay. That's that's your there to hear. <laughs> uh, talk to us a little bit about this conquer addiction thing. And I know your mom will talk more about it, but I, I want to hear about it from your perspective because it's very, very different than hers. I'm imagining. Yeah. So I, I think the impetus of it really came from the three different times that my mom was trying to find treatment for me because you better believe I was not the one on the phone. Right. Like I'm, I'm laying there in bed, like, Oh my God, I'm going to try to get sober. Like how it, my life is over. Um, and she was the one out there actually trying to find a place for me and making the calls and doing the work and spending the money and making this truly life or death decision based off of nothing to go on other than, you know, what the website says or what someone on the phone has to say right and how good they make it sound and I remember her having those phone calls I also remember being part of them like after she would talk to them they would ask to talk to me and I would talk to the person on the phone for a little while and we'd set everything up but really I mean it we we had the privilege and the the opportunity to send me to some really nice treatment centers but most people don't have that opportunity and most people are going on their insurance and they're going to some pretty shady and seedy places sometimes and there's a ton of really truly fantastic treatment centers out there that are doing amazing work you know my husband is in the field he works for a company that he is incredibly proud to represent and be part of like I've known so many people whose lives have been irrevocably changed including my own due to good quality treatment but there also are a lot of treatment centers out there that um you know that aren't as effective and that might not be driven by the same values and the same goals and this is especially true several years ago right when um, there was all the patient brokering and everything like that down here in Florida where I live now so there have been some positive changes in the field that I've seen at least here in Florida but um, you know for a very long time and to this day you just you don't necessarily know how good you're of the treatment you're getting until you're actually there and so 
that was something that really stuck out to my mom is how am I supposed to be making these decisions with such little data to go off of? And, um, you know, if you think about going to, if you're going to have heart surgery, you can look up the success rates of your surgeon. You can look up the hospital rates. Like you can do your research because it's a medical procedure and, and addiction is really kind of the wild, wild west in terms of not requiring any of those types of data inputs. And so after the immediate crisis was over and I had had some significant amount of sobriety under my belt and it seemed like, you know, I was going to be okay. I think that was really when my mom was able to take a breath and step back and say, okay, well, how can I help other people, other moms that are in this position to go through this process and have a little bit more to go off of than what I did. And that was really the, the birth of Conquer Addiction. And so she and I worked together to launch this nonprofit, which essentially the way that I like to describe it is almost like a Yelp for treatment centers where you can look at the different ratings, you can look yeah. at the outcomes data, and you can also filter based off of your location or your insurance company, how much money you might have to pay, um, what type of treatment you're looking for if you want one specific gender, things like that. And um, something like that really had never existed before. Or if it did, it was completely fueled by by ads, right? It, it wasn't actual reviews. It was just the company is paying to, to use the site to sell themselves to you. And so it was truly, um, truly the first of its kind. But as we were doing that, it became very clear that treatment centers weren't tracking their outcomes data. And if they were, which very few of them were, they certainly weren't sharing it. And so that then led to my mom creating Vista Research, which is where she's actually created this incredible tool. It does many, many, many things. I'm sure she'll talk to you more about it next week. But, um, you know, just really incredible technology that's helping not just addiction, but behavioral health as well, both in treatment and collecting long-term outcomes data, which is something that truly, like, I get so excited thinking about the impact that this could have on the field once it becomes widely, not only like accepted, but required, which we've seen so much progress in that stance. I mean, it, it is really, really exciting to think about how many lives could be changed by having more, not necessarily regulation, but just more visibility onto which treatment centers have better outcomes. Because I think this whole idea of, well, personal responsibility, and we can't be responsible for outcomes data because relapse is part of the process and it's all on the person. I mean, yes, there's there's definitely a huge level of personal responsibility with addiction, but every single healthcare chronic disease, there is a large level of lifestyle that plays into it. And so I think that that's just a complete cop out to say, well, we're not responsible for the outcomes because it's up to the person. Well, I mean, that's true in pretty much every other medical sense too, but we're still tracking it. So. Well, and, and we're still doing follow-up check, you know, so like if you, if you're a cancer patient, you go in every three months for scans for three years and then you go every six months, you know, so you're right. We we've, we've abdicated the medical component or the, the um, responsibility component and placed it squarely on the most vulnerable member of the community of the community that's trying to stay sober. Exactly. Yeah. So it is, I, I think that you know, this, I'm just incredibly proud of the work that we've done, of the work that my mom has done, because without her work with Vista, uh, we really would never have been able to launch Conquer Addiction the way that we have. And so I'm just incredibly inspired by the work that we've done, by the research that we're getting ready to conduct, and hopefully be able to prove to insurance companies with their own data that if they're willing to pay for a full 30 days of treatment for certain populations, that they're, it will be saving them money long term and it's worth it. So, I mean, there's so much, so much to unpack here when it comes to treatment, when it comes to insurance and things like that. But really, um, we're, we're trying to start doing the work necessary to create some systemic change because, because how it is right now, it's... Um, it's just not sustainable and it's not as effective as it should and could be. There's a lot to think about that. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, you, you, this, this needed to be done and you know, people like to, 
I mean, it's, I hate to think why you chose originally to go to San Diego State. I don't know if you could look up uh, Playboy best school to go to. I didn't think that was one of the criteria. Oh, no, it's a thing. Yeah, it's a real thing. <laughs> but people were going to be doing that for treatment centers. And if, if there's no, you know, I just went to. Well, we the, I put Maz into the one down the street because yeah. it was the only one I knew of. And because I didn't believe we could afford anything else. I mean, I. I our experience with treatment was exactly what you're talking about. We knew nobody who'd yeah. gone to treatment. We didn't know anything about treatment. I knew of this place because they had some local commercials. And I just thought, that's it. We got to get him in there. And mm -hmm. I just put my head down and forced them to take him yeah. and forced him to go. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, we, we got very fortunate that it stuck. But that's not, that's not a smart way to make decisions. We also didn't know anything about it or how... You yeah, know, how effective it, it was. How effective it was. I mean, thankfully, it seems to have all paid off. Yeah, but. yeah. Yeah, the unknowns are incredible. So, Karina, um, maybe just our last question for you. Uh, what what can you say to someone watching this? I, our audience tends to be people who are not in the throes of addiction because they're not searching out this kind of content. But for for the people watching who are just feeling hopeless either because they're they're caught in it or because someone they love is caught in it. What what um, hope can you provide them based on your lived experience? Well, I think um, it would be different for the two types of audiences we're talking about, right? So for, for the people that are attempting that they're like in recovery, but they're having a hard time, they're feeling like it's not gonna stick or they're just dealing with a lot of cravings and feeling very hopeless. I would just say that I've been there countless times. I was there for pretty much five years straight. And I truly believe like if I can get this, anyone can. And I know that's so cliche and everyone says it, but like I really shouldn't be alive today and I absolutely shouldn't be living a beautiful, wonderful life like I am. And so I think that there is always hope. You don't have to hit that bottom that I did or that bottom that, you know, could, I mean, everyone has a different bottom and I think that you can always keep digging, but you don't have to. And your bottom can be whatever you say it is. And yeah. there truly is, a better life out there where if you're still constantly thinking about it, if you're dry or however you might want to call that, like I, I was there for a long time and it shocked me how quickly that was lifted when I threw myself with every ounce of my being into a plan of recovery. And I think that there are different plans of recovery out there for, for everyone. For me, AA really did change my life. Um, but I know there are other programs out there and you know some people find it through religion and things like that but like keep keep searching keep trying and throwing yourself into things until you find something that feels like it's working and go as fast as you can and as far as you can into it because it really is like I honestly didn't believe people when they said that the desire to drink or to use was lifted for them because to me that didn't feel like it was feasible and I thought okay well either you're not an alcoholic or you're not the type of alcoholic that I am because I have never once like I've been craving alcohol since before I even drank alcohol. So there's no possible way that I couldn't crave it. And I I did. Like I I don't crave it at all anymore. And it happened very, very, very quickly. And so there is hope. But um, you know, you do, or at least I did. I had to work. I really had to throw myself into it, especially at the beginning. And also that's the thing too, is that like when I'd hear people talking about going to a meeting every single day for 10 years or something like that, I was like, Ugh. like <laughs> I, want to, I want to get someone to have a life, you know, and, and I want AA to be part of that life, but I don't want my whole life to be this, you know, things that I have to do every single day. And, and so I will say that too, that like, I don't go to a meeting every single day anymore, but yeah. I did in the beginning and it, it really helped. It helped to go though. Yeah. It did. It absolutely like I I did 90 meetings in 90 days that first 90 days. And I think that that really truly like is that's the first time I had done that. And it was also the first time that I stayed sober um, long term. And then to the so that would be my, you know, just my personal experience. I'm glad that because I had a conversation with someone in AA and I said, I'm worried about missing my first meeting because Dana wants me to go out to dinner with our friends. And he said, well, you got to go out. 
said, you missed all this stuff with your life because you were drinking. He said, don't miss your life now because you're not drinking. Exactly. Said, That's brilliant. He said, how many times do you go? I said, well, I go to a Friday and a Saturday one. I said, well, are you going to go to the Saturday one? I said, well, yeah. Said, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that was something that I really did. That was something I was concerned about. And yeah. so I think it is helpful to hear that that doesn't have to be how it is forever. But if it's helping for now, yeah, keep doing it. Yeah. And then for, for the parents or the loved ones who are, are suffering right along with their loved ones who are struggling. I mean, I think keeping the faith and also I think it's really important in that case, again, I haven't lived it, but you can probably relate. And I'm sure my mom can, like, it's important, I think, to, to try to live your life as well, because you can't control your loved one and you can love them as hard as you possibly can. You can be there and support them financially, emotionally, however you can, but ultimately like you can't, force them to recover and to, or to stay sober. And, and you need to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and your immediate family as best you can, because it's a very, very tragic and very uh, traumatic experience for loved ones to probably in some cases, even more so than the addict themselves, because there is no sense of control at all. I can pick up a drink or not, but my mom can't control that for me. And that's got to feel even harder. Hmm. It's a really interesting point. Well, Karina, this has been incredible. It certainly has. It was a delight to meet you and listen to your story. Yeah, just thank you so much for sharing and just congratulations and continued yeah, good luck. I mean, yes, you have a fantastic family unit there that I just hope <laughs> flourishes Yeah, with uh, two parents like the two of you. I don't think, I think these two lasses are in good hands. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. It was really, really lovely to meet both of you and to chat with you and congratulations to you as well. I, I'm so inspired by all of not only your sobriety and your recovery, but also the work that you're doing to spread this message of hope and positivity to those of us who really need to hear it, which is all of us really. So thank you for the incredible work that you're doing. And I, I hope to keep in touch. Oh, we will so absolutely too. keep in touch, Karina. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Have a fantastic Have day. Have a great day. And everybody Thank else, you. we'll see you next Tuesday. Thanks Bye. again. Bye. everyone. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D-A-Y-N-A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L dot com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.